Good morning again. My name is Sam McLaughlin and I'm one of the pastors here if you were just tuning up in with us online. We're so thrilled that you're here to worship with us and it's just so good to see your faces, church. I hope you feel good about being here in this space and gathering together and feeling the warmth of community. Throughout uh, the season of Lent, we have been looking at the Lord's Prayer. Each week we've been examining a different line both on Sunday morning and Wednesday evening. And today, as Amy said to our children, we will look at the final line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Scholars call this line a doxology. And we, as we look in the scriptures in Matthew and Luke, we see that this doxology is actually not a part of the prayer that Jesus taught. We've been talking about how Jesus prayed many times in the, in the Bible, but this was the only prayer that Jesus said to us, pray like this. Now, while this line, this doxology is not in Matthew or Luke, it is in an early Christian writing called the Didache. The Didache, which literally means teaching in Greek, was an early Christian writing that gave us insight into how the early Christians lived. And so we can believe that by the end of the first century, Christians were reciting this doxology or something very close to it as a shout of praise in response to the prayer they just prayed. During Lent, we've also been looking at this book called The Lord's Prayer by senior pastor Adam Hamilton. He's at a church out in Kansas City, one of the largest United Methodist Church churches in the world. And he uh, reminds us, shows us that contextually, short words of praise are common all throughout the scriptures. And that this doxology can likely be traced to King David's words in 1 Chronicles 29. This is what King David says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. And so we might say today, right from the very beginning, this is a line of praise to God. It is an alleluia, a lyrical affirmation of faith. It is a proclamation, a firm belief that the daily bread and sustenance we just prayed for will be provided, that we can be forgiving and gracious people, that temptation in our lives can be defeated, that we do not have to overcome, be overcome by evil, but we have the capacity to overcome evil with good, all because God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So now let's turn to these three things, kingdom. In our scripture passage for today, Jesus is being questioned by some Pharisees about when the kingdom of God will come. Jesus replies to them in the short verse that we read today, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translations say, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, if you keep reading the rest of this chapter, it gets kind of weird and interesting, so I invite you to go and do that. You might have heard these words before. 
the Pharisees want to know not just when it's coming, but where and how. And Jesus offers some strange examples. He talks about the flood suddenly descending on people in the days of Noah. He talks about sulfur and fire that rained down from heaven in Sodom. And then he says, I tell you, uh, on that night, two people will be in the bed and one will be taken up and one will be left. Or two people will be, two women will be out grinding the mill and all of a sudden one will be taken and one will be left. Now, if you've ever read the books Left Behind, I think this is maybe where the inspiration comes from. Talking about this passage uh, is really interesting, and there's a book called Seeds of Heaven by a wonderful author and preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor. And so here was uh, what she reminded us of when looking at this passage, that this uh, picture of rapture, as we might call it, is not actually in the Bible. The word rapture is not in scripture at all. The view of rapture uh, comes from an Anglican priest who came from Ireland. His name was John Nelson Darby, and he spent the large part of the 19th century preaching about something called premillennial dispensationalism. There will be a quiz later. I mean, some of you thought it was funny. <laughs> According to Darby, history is divided into seven ages or seven dispensations. And when the dispensation of the millennial kingdom comes, there will be a great tribulation and God will remove the elect by means of the rapture. Israel will be restored, the wicked will be destroyed by Armageddon, and Christ will reign for 1,000 years on earth. To some of you, that might sound crazy, and to others, it feels like something you grew up uh, listening to or believing. And so I think this is a moment to examine those visions of what the end will look like. I'm not sure that we should walk around saying, hey, uh, Marion, I'm gonna be taken, but good luck, because you're gonna be left. Barbara Brown Taylor suggests a different interpretation she says these examples that Jesus offers are not literal, they're metaphor. Stories that show us that instead of worrying when or where or how the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness, we should live alert. We should live prepared. We should live ready. We should live fully in that tension that we call the already but not yet. And that is part of what Jesus says in our passage. Already, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. You can access it and feel it when you experience healing and loving and compassion and kindness. Already, you can taste and see the goodness of God around you. Already, you possess in your soul the power and the glory of God. And so our task is to wake up to it to resist the temptation to dwell in yesterday or fear the future. Here's the real version of the story that will take place. Revelation 21 says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God and God's dwelling place will be with the people. That doesn't mean that God doesn't already dwell with us. It means that one day permanently, God will come to dwell with us. And God will wipe every tear from your eye. Finally, there will be no more crying or mourning or death or pain. That is our promise, our assurance, our hope. But until then, 
We are called to lay down our earthly kingdoms, these ones that we build where we hold on to resentment and regret, bitterness, grudges, where we hoard our resources and give in to scarcity, where we love wealth. See, until the final day, we are to take off our crown and take up our cross. Until the final day, we are to use the power that God has given us deep within to unlock and uncover and unveil those pieces of heaven that are already in our midst. As Adam Hamilton explores uh, this power that we talk about in the prayer, he explains that the Greek word that we translate for power is dynamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It appears hundreds of times in the Bible. And so when we say that God has dynamis, we claim that God is the power by which all things exist, and God is the rightful authority and ruler of all. What we should maybe also consider when we talk about power is the Trinity, that God lives in community, that God exists in shared power that there are different situations in which power is shifted and the one who is needed steps up. As followers of Jesus, we must also understand that God shares that power with us. God has called us to co-partner with God. We see this when Jesus promises the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come on them and they will have power to testify and witness to the glory of God. You know, the issue comes for us, the power issue comes for us when we adopt to and cling to earthly power. We know that power in our lives can look like the position that we hold in our workplace or the position in our family, our economic means, our influence over others, our relationships, even our physical strength. And that power, it can be wielded for good, but it can also be used for evil. Some of us maybe know what it feels like to go on a power trip where the ego is inflated, where we feel important and prestigious and untouchable when we believe that we're due a certain level of respect. But that's not God's method of power. God gave us Christ who shows us the ultimate example of someone who had all the power to do what he wanted for himself but chose to give it up for the good of the whole, chose to elevate others. If you've experienced someone uh, laying aside power in your life, then maybe you understand what I mean. I had this experience actually behind this very communion table. A couple of years ago when I uh, first came to this church, uh, the former senior pastor, Jim Hughes, invited our bishop, Bill McAlilly, to come and preach and preside over the table uh, in the Methodist Church, bishops kind of hold some power and authority, right? And so uh, it was my, I was like new to ministry and I'm standing right here and here's the bishop and here's Jim and we're sharing the liturgy. And when it comes time for uh, me to step up and do my part, the bishop literally like stepped back and moved over. And I don't know that he remembered that or that it was just a practical thing for him to do in the moment, but for me, as a young pastor, as a woman, it was symbolic of the space that he was making for me. And so when we talk about shared power, 
That's what God invites us to do, to be people who step back, step aside, move over, and make room for others. And so you may think, uh, the kingdom of God lives in me? Yeah, you have access to that because every single person in this room in some situation holds power. And so you can use that power to step aside, to move over, to make room. The final word in our uh, verse is glory. In, the, in Greek, it's doxa, where we get doxology. In Hebrew, the word is kavod. It's in the Bible 480 times. It means weight, reputation, splendor, impressiveness, majesty. Before coming to this church uh, almost six years ago, my husband Mark and I went on a trip all across Europe. He had never been to Europe before. And the first place that we started was Scotland. And so we flew into Edinburgh and then um, drove to the island of Skye. I have to tell you that driving on the left side of the road jet lagged is a great way to test the strength of your marriage. <laughs> we had to stop and take a nap, I'll just say that. When we arrived at this beautiful little quaint uh, Airbnb on the side of a hill, uh, we got a good night's sleep and the next morning our wonderful hostess made us a huge Scottish breakfast. That day we hiked and explored miles and miles of untouched terrain. I mean, rivers that were like flowing off mountains through meadows, um, the beautiful coastal cliffs. But it was the end of the day that really stuck out in my mind. We stopped to eat dinner and there was a lake in front of us. It was like 9 p.m. and the sun was just setting. And as far left as I could see to as far right as I could see, the sky was just illuminated in pink and orange. And I felt that we were just like sitting there enveloped in heaven, hugged by splendor, embraced and engulfed in impressiveness. And I think when we think about the glory of God, that's what we have access to. Our challenge is to bottle up that moment and to take it with us when we face the real world, when we face our hardships and our sins, the trials that are set before us. But even more than that, when I think about the glory of God, I'm tempted to be suspended in those kind of memories, but I think it's deeper. My family is in town, of course, for my uh, daughter's baptism. And so, you know, I'm watching everybody yesterday and I'm thinking, you know what? The glory of God is also playing a not so friendly competitive game of cornhole with my husband. The glory of God is also sitting on the back porch talking to my brother. The glory of God is uh, buying my mother a unicorn birthday balloon and watching my father-in-law knock down groceries as we walk through the grocery store. The glory of God are grandmothers who love their grandchildren. The glory of God is my son getting to know his cousins and growing up to love them. The glory of God is my seven-month-old wrapping her finger around mine. See, the glory of God is not just something extraordinary. It is right here in front of you every day in the midst of everything that is seemingly routine and ordinary and mundane. Be alert to it. Stay awake to it. You may remember a children's show from the 90s called Lamb Chops Play Along. 
I'm really hoping somebody remembers it. <laughs> okay, I got some hands. It was uh, created by Sherry Lewis, and if you don't know it, there were puppets that interacted with Sherry on the screen, but also with kids in the studio and kids like me that watched the show in the 90s. And at the end of the show, Charlie Horse would begin to sing a song, and then Lamb Chop would join in. So I'm hoping somebody's gonna join in with me. This is how the song went. This is the song that doesn't end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friend. Some people started singing and not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song that doesn't end. As we pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We affirm with a shout of praise, with an alleluia, with a lyrical affirmation of faith, with a doxology for the ages, that God is the song that doesn't end. Amen. <laughs>